Um, before I hop into the message today, uh, I know all of you are eagerly anticipating what's about to happen. So um, before we get into the message today, I want to uh, once again just uh, refer a reference that uh, I don't do this very often. I read a lot of different things, a lot of different books, and this is a book that I came across recently. It's been fueling a lot of the content that we're going to uh, be diving into over the next few weeks around here, including today. Um, It's a book by Jonathan Grant called Divine Sex, A Compelling Vision for Christian Relationships in a Hypersexualized Age. And uh, so far, this has been a brilliant book. I haven't got through the whole thing yet, but... Um, Jonathan Grant mixes a very, very, uh, a very great, like a great amount of philosophy and theology into this book, and I love how he's tackling certain issues. So it's not just emotive in nature, it's not just like um, historical in nature, like because we're Christians, we say it this way, but this is actually like a well thought out, well argued perspective on why we see things the way that we see them concerning sex and sexuality and the issues around sex from a Christian perspective. Y'all with me? And so today we are diving in um, to all things sex. Yes! So, um, hopefully you brought your Bibles and your notebooks. Um, If you are a parent in here and you have your fifth or fourth grader sitting next to you or anything below that, um, feel free to just hop up right now and take them into kids' ministry. Today we'll have some mature content in it, quotes that I'm going to read. And if you don't want to, just be prepared for some great conversation after church. And (laughs) just be like, hey, we're going to Costco. We're going to get some pizza and... Talk about the issue of lust, because that's what we're dealing with today. Y'all, y'all with me? Y'all good? All right. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 9 is the context of this little mini-series that we're in that we've been calling Happily Before and After. For the sake of time, it's seven verses that I'm not going to read today. You can go back and read it. Um, this is where Peter introduces us to uh, the issue. He's dealing with a very specific issue in the context of marriage. But from there, we used it as a launching pad to deal with uh, all relationships in general. We've called this happily before and after um, because marriage is not just something that we work on when we're married, but it's something that we work on when we're single. Come on, somebody. Right? And so, and then secondarily to all the singles in the house, just so y'all know, you're not, like this church is not a place where we believe that singleness or that like needs to get fixed. And the only way that it gets fixed is through marriage. Marriage is not the pinnacle of your relational life. It's just another designation of your relational life. Okay? And so that's really important for us to understand because I'm going to talk about a lot of information today and, and deal with a lot of stuff today that if we're not careful, what we can do, especially as married people, is we can go like, oh, I'm married now, um, and I'm having sex, so none of this matters to me. <laughs> not true, <laughs> okay? And some of you singles will listen to this message today, and you'll be like, oh, that's prudish, and that's irrelevant, and so on and so forth, and that's not true as well. I'll qualify all that in, in a second. So how many of you would agree with me right now? Show of hands, this is not a trick question. How many would, uh, of you would agree with me that sex, sexuality, sexual ethic, and all things sex impact every single one of our lives? Show of hands. Okay. All right? All, it impacts all of us, and so we have to deal with this Subject matter day. So, First uh, Peter chapter three verses one through seven is been the launching pad for this series. But I'm going to take us now to Romans chapter seven verses fourteen to twenty-four. One of my favorite pieces of scripture. This is Paul the apostle writing to the church at Rome, and he says this: For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. You ever been there before? 
Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is, is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it's the sin that lives in me. If you need anything to like title this piece of scripture, I call it the doo-doo scripture. <laughs> Verse 21, so I discover this law. So this is Paul's discovery now. He says, when I wanna do what is good, this is important for all of us today, Evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. I I meditate on his word. I I pray. I I do the things that I think that I'm supposed to do. I love God, but I see a different law in the parts of my body. Oh, come on. Have you ever been there before? And it's waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. And then he asked probably one of the most profound questions that we could ever ask is, who will rescue me from this body of death? Spoiler alert, he goes on to talk about the name which is above every other name, Jesus. He is the great rescuer. He is the great plan. He is the one that saves us from this brokenness. But it doesn't excuse the truth that we all deal with the issue of wanting to do what I do not want to do and doing what I despise. And so today, as we continue on in this little mini-series, Happily Before and After, I want to speak to you from this subject matter right here. Ladders, not buckets. Ladders, not buckets. As we we deal with the issue of lust today, will you pray one more time with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's live, it's active, it's powerful, and has the ability to transform us from the inside out. And so, Jesus, right now, I ask that as we work through your word today, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate it, Father, that we'd be set free today in and through your grace and your truth because we know that your word says the truth will set us free. So I thank you for truth and I pray that it would be proclaimed today, not through my words, but through your words. Move me out of the way today, Jesus. We pray all these things in your amazing name. Come on, everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. Have, have you ever said this before? That's not what that's used for. Come on, show how many of you have said that? Parents, you've said that? Maybe like you've said that to a friend, a spouse. Like, like, that's not what that's used for. It happens in my house all the time. That's not what that is used for. Stop hitting your brother with a bat. You hit balls, right? <laughs> so um, I used to paint. If you don't know my background, after I got out of Bible college, I used my degree right out the gate and went and did commercial painting. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, right after a prison stint at Red Robin, and it was, um, and so, I'd never painted before. My father-in-law got me the job, and uh, right when I had joined up to to commercial paint, it was summertime, and so I was doing a lot of exterior stuff, and in Seattle, once the rain comes, all of the exterior outside painters, they get get put on, they get uh, layaway. They don't get put on layaway. Um. But they lose their job for a little while. Many of them take, uh, just take leave. And I didn't need that. I needed to work full time. And so I got hooked up with an apprentice who's going to teach me indoor painting. And not just indoor painting, but like high-end indoor, like so offices, lawyers' offices, doctors, banks, so on and so forth. And so 
being a young guy at that point, I didn't know much about it, but I worked hard to learn everything that I possibly can and paid attention and learned how to cut lines and what kind of paint does what and all this stuff. And so I remember one day he's like, today I'm gonna teach you how to climb a ladder. And I was like, oh no, sir, I know how to climb a ladder. To which he said, no, you don't. And so he taught me how to climb a ladder and he taught me what a ladder was used for and he taught me why I needed to always have a ladder with me. And I thought this was a stupid conversation. Because I'm like, well, duh, it's, it's a ladder. Why would you be teaching me how to use a ladder? Why would you be telling me that I should have a ladder at all times? And why would you tell me that I should always use a ladder? The reason that he told me all this is because he knew that there would be a proclivity inside of every person that, that paints to not use a ladder, but to use something else. <laughs> to which one day I did so. And instead of grabbing the ladder that I was supposed to grab, I was in a stairwell and I decided to use a bucket. Now what was interesting about this guy who was teaching me his ways is that he knew that after everything he said, after everything that I was trained on, he knew that through all of that, I still was gonna use a bucket. <laughs> every person before me and every person before them for generations, like children's children's children using buckets when they should be using ladders. You know, it's interesting though, as I stood in the bucket that day and I got up on the bucket, And I reached, and I painted, and if I'm honest with you, I thought, ladders, who needs a ladder? I got a bucket, until I realized that what I was reaching for was out of reach with just one bucket. So, y'all laugh. So I went for two buckets. <laughs> right now, I just won the argument. How many of you agree with me? There's a right way to use something, and there's a wrong way to use something. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Somebody like, I'm not clapping now. Just buckets. Okay, cool, it's just buckets. Well, let's figure out another plan. Sometimes we get really good at it and we, and we, try, to, we try to do things differently. Well, okay, I, still, I don't wanna use the ladder, I just wanna use the bucket. And so now I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to how many of you agree with me? This is probably, like, you're still, you're still, whoa. <laughs> My wife's not even looking at me right now. She's like, you're an idiot. Um, How many of you get what I'm driving at already? See, the problem is that when we use things contrary to their designed use, we end up devaluing them. And upon the devaluation of them, they tend to continually, as we continually try to use them this way, um, we end up breaking them. So this is lust, if you need a definition today. It's a longing or craving for something that drives us to use things contrary to their original design and intent in order to receive what it is we are longing for. So here's the problem. I'm using the term love today because this seems to be the term that we can all wrap our minds around, but 
mixed into all this is purpose and design and intimacy and identity, and let, let, let's lump it all in there, right? And so this is the big conquest of our lives, to, to find love, especially where it's romantically concerned or relationally concerned. And I wanna, I wanna tell you that there is a way that we can safely find what it is that we are looking for. In the context of God's perfect plan for our life. He's designed a way for us to get there. Come on, somebody. The problem that's happening in our world right now and that many of us are engaged in is that we are trying to get it a different way. I can't use, but <laughs> we're using buckets, not ladders. Lust. Now there's variations to this and we're gonna be talking about this over the next few weeks as we're gonna poke at different Things, but lust is all about using things, especially sex and sexuality, in a way that is contrary to its original design and intent. Y'all with me this morning? Yeah. Rebecca DeYoung says it like this, when we misuse something habitually, we find we lose our ability to appreciate its true goodness. She goes on to say, the more single-mindedly we pursue something for the pleasure we can get from it, the less likely we are to find our desire for pleasure satisfied. Couple more quotes so that we can hear the tenor of the, of the conversation. C.S. Lewis commenting on the issue of lust would call it a harem of imaginary brides. To which he would go on to say this, it takes an appetite which in lawful proper use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another. And finally, in children and grandchildren. And it turns it, he's talking about lust, lust turns it back, sends the man back into, or woman, back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real, in this case, he's talking about man, woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments. It can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the median through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we were all born in. This was a letter that C.S. Lewis would write to a friend in 1956. And if that's not powerful enough for us, I wanna read a quote from John Mayer that I think is really important for us to hear in light of our conversation today. I'm not going where you think. This was an article that was done by Playboy Magazine with him and he said this, I'm a self-soother. The internet, DVR, Netflix, Twitter, all these things are moments in time throughout your day when you're able to soothe yourself. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. There have, been probably, there have, there have probably been days when I saw 300 naked women before I got out of bed. Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? And then listen to what he says. It's got to. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. The best days of my life are when I've dreamed about a sexual encounter with someone I've never been with. 
And while a quote like that may be jarring, it shouldn't be considering the world that we are now living in has all but abandoned the idea of a transcendent and spiritual self. One that is ruled by a great purpose and ethic, i.e. God. To sum it up, I borrow from the renowned atheist Charles Darwin when he says this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find a rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And this is why understanding the issue of sex, sexuality, and our subject matter today, lust, is so important in light of and through a biblical and Christ-centric lens. It is of the utmost importance to not deal with this issue at length is to, is to significantly handicap our ability as men and women to navigate the waters of what sociologist and philosopher Zygmunt Bauman calls liquid modernity, always shifting, always changing, always flipping the script on something. Have you, have you ever known that there's a new, like have you realized this? Every day we wake up, there's a new sexual proclivity, there's a new identity, there's a new this, is a new way to do something, a new way to receive something, a new way to get something. I hope no one's uncomfortable in church today. <laughs> Liquid modernity, this being the ever-changing and very fluid sexual culture of our modern day and society. Philosophically speaking, there has never been a time in history where the core of our identity has been defined by sex, sexuality, and sexual proclivity. Our identity was based on that which was transcendent and located outside of us, i.e. faith. Whereas now, sex is the core framework of our identity. Have you noticed that? Somehow we've, in this generation, we've come to this place where who I am and what I enjoy and what I want, that's actually, that's who I am. And it never used to be that way. It's in this transition, mainly brought on in and through the sexual revolution that it's all but altered the way that we see sex and sexuality and its place in our lives. So as it pertains to the issue of lust, many of us do not have a framework to deal with this because we have been conditioned and indoctrinated by what Rod Dreyer, author Rod Dreyer calls sec secular liturgies. So let's get this out of the way now if you're wondering, okay, where is he going with all of this? I want us to hear this and I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth today. There is a way that God sees and defines human sexuality and there's a way that the world sees and defines human sexuality and they are at odds with each other. Four of you are clapping, we'll get there. Now I need to say this, we may not like it, but we cannot change it. And yet some of us will still argue. I find it interesting that in this generation right now, we're, we're scanning the, the, the words of this book right here, thinking that we have the authority and the autonomy and the ability to decide what God said was not actually what he said. What God said is what he said. We cannot take away, we cannot remove, we cannot erase. But we still try. We try and mince the words of scripture to make space for our deviance in this area. God's perspective, it's not unloving. It's not prudish, it's not old fashioned, it's not out of date. Rather his design is intentional, it's fruit bearing, it's love focused, it's beneficial. 
And with that in mind, I want to deal with the issue of lust today. That's just my introduction, okay? So, <laughs> I have eight points today, um, five of which we're not going to get through. We're going to continue on. This is going to be like a smorgasbord event over the next few weeks. Y'all with me still? So come back. Some of you are like, I'm not coming back next week. Um, come back next week and over the, the next few weeks, and we're going to be working through this. And it's going to impact like teens and singles and married people, all of us in between. Listen, we need to talk about this. Amen? All right. So first, what I want to do before we, how, how we deal with lust, I want to look at what lust does. I want to look at, I, I want to look at how lust impacts our lives. I want to look at three things. Here's the, here's the first one today. Come on, we're shot number one. Here's the first truth we need to understand about lust is that lust undermines intimacy. Lust undermines intimacy. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses four to seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is such a great perspective up here, we should do this more often. I, <laughs> Let's see everybody. But many of us are trying to get it on buckets, not ladders. See, lust wants intimacy without risk or responsibility, an outcome that is not possible. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not just this existential idea of what love is, it's actually the ingredients for intimacy. Lust wants intimacy without risk or responsibility. It resists boundaries. It wants to go wherever it wants to go, whenever it wants to go there. But real, lasting, mutual, loving relationships don't work without placing boundaries on lust, and neither does society. This has always been true. It's only been recently, beginning in the 18th century, that lust has been redefined and repackaged in a way that has become socially and morally acceptable. We now celebrate it. Intimacy is actually the product of restraint. Did you hear that today? Intimacy is the product of restraint. Some of us need to write that down today. Intimacy is the product of restraint. Here's the funny thing is, and we're gonna get into this in other conversations, a lot of singles, they think that we can just go wild and out, do everything that we wanna do, and then I've heard this before, many, many times, sitting in my office, like when I get married, that will take care of it. Can I just tell you, if some of you need a definition of what singleness, singleness is practiced submission. Helen was clapping, that's it, just Helen. <laughs> Come on. Singleness is practiced submission. If you can't submit your drive for sex when you are single, what makes you think you will be able to do it when you're married? Got a few more clapping, okay. 
But it's, it's why, like, I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. I'm going to live my best life while I'm single. And then when, when we get married, when I find my man, when I find my woman, then, like, everything's going to be cool, and I can keep sex within the confines of this. What? Are you crazy? How long does it take you to remove Oreos from your life? <laughs> After 4th of July weekend when it's like, well, it's just the 4th of July, me and Oreos, come on, somebody. <clears throat> I was telling somebody the other day, I was, on a, I was on a trip with a bunch of pastors, and what was crazy about the trip is that I had to do some, like, just body weight workouts. Why? Not because the body weight workout was gonna produce anything in me. I had to keep the habit going so that the week off didn't stop me from re-engaging once I got back, right? It's a habit, it's practice submission. And it's wild that if we don't get this in our, there's so many things in marriage to the singles that you need to understand this, that like go against this. Did you know after, like, after she gave birth, we couldn't do anything. I told you we're gonna be real. <clears throat> Doc's like, I'm like, how long? Like, Weeks. <laughs> Just so you know, someone was like, we shouldn't be talking about this in church. Go look at what they're talking about in school. Come then on. tell me what we should be talking about. <clears throat> So just a heads up. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to stop. stop. <laughs> so, some of you are like, I'm homeschooling now. <laughs> when she was pregnant, she didn't even want me near her. So it's like, we can't, and I don't want to. There's sickness, there's cancer, there's loss. Come on, that's all, that's all in the context of marriage. Love is patient, love is kind. It's not, em it's not envious, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, rude, it's not self-seeking. And we need to know that, especially in our single years, for the singles out there, that if you spend X amount of years being self-seeking, as Paul just told us in Romans chapter seven, it's gonna be really hard to submit that self-seeking to the one who says you must die to yourself. Come on. So intimacy is actually the product of restraint because much of what we tend to desire has been formed either by inappropriate sources or lack of positive experience. And this is especially true when we're dealing with sex and sexuality. Intimacy begins with both mutual submission and mutual restraint. And it's only produced by mutual love because love is the driving force behind selfishness and sacrifice. Lust says I want what I want and I want it now because it's about me. Therefore, lust undermines any attempt at intimacy because intimacy is all about the other, not me. Married sex is about the other person. It's mutual submission and mutual restraint. Yeah. It's the most beautiful that there is. Yeah. And you can say, well, like, oh, you know, the world, I don't, I'm, I'm not talking about what the world believes. They believe very different. 
Let's go back to what I said at the beginning. I'm teaching you from the framework of what the Bible espouses. That's it. That's it. It's your responsibility to decide whether you're going to live according to that or not. I'm just being your pastor in this moment to say, here's the theological discourse on it. Here is our doctrinal view on this stuff. It's your responsibility to decide whether you're going to live and work through that or not. Rebecca DeYoung says this about love. To love is to appreciate and value another person for his or, own, for his or her own sake, <clears throat> and not just what the person can do for you. The hallmarks of love, the freedom of giving oneself to another, are excluded from lust's manipulative view. I want to read this <clears throat> so I can hit all of us on the head today. I'm just going to be an equal opportunity offender, Okay. Lust can manifest itself in our lives in many ways. Imagining what it uh, would it be like to be with someone who's everything your partner isn't. Mm. Defining someone's worth based upon how attractive you find them. Trying to picture what someone else would look like naked. Wanting your partner to be the sum total of all your favorite traits of all your favorite people with none of their deficiencies. Living vicariously through a fictitious character's romance instead of engaging in your own. Trolling the internet for moving pictures of naked people doing stuff. Feeling disinterested in your partner's body when compared to other bodies. Being physical with one person while picturing another. Pressuring someone into doing something they find demeaning. Placing enormous expectations on your partner while being offended at their expectations of you. That is lust. That's lust. <clears throat> so it's not just looking at porn and sleeping with people I'm not supposed to be. One of the most celebrated books of all time was Fifty Shades of Grey. Lust isn't about admiring beauty, form, or physique. It's about indulging a fantasy that looks to take, possess, or use someone as a means to its own escapist ends. It gives you permission to see another person, listen to this, it gives you permission to see another person as an object for your consumption or exploitation, a way to get what you want and feel how you want to feel. Lust depersonalizes and dehumanizes others. It's interested in giving the least to get the most. Lust has an escalation rate. The escalation rate is, is what takes place when we meditate on certain things. Why? Because we move in the direction of our thoughts. This is lust. I have a very, very strict regiment when it comes to the shows that I watch. And it's not because I'm this just overly like, oh, I just need like porn and this and that or the other. No, I just need to tell you that I just don't want it in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you've been around for any amount of time, I'm an, like an imaginative person. I tell stories, ladders and buckets, <laughs> shapes and colors. So for me, if I don't keep this thing straight, what can get in here can wound me. And I just want to help us, and especially guys, we move in the direction of our thoughts. We move in the direction of our thoughts. So this is how lust undermines intimacies. It creates distance between us and those in our lives that we desire to be intimate with. Remember that intimacy is not just physical in nature. Where lust is ruling our minds and our bodies, we find a wall built up that keeps us at distance from each other because lust simply wants what it wants. Number two, everybody shout number two. Lust dilutes purity. Lust dilutes purity. <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna just 
deal with an issue that I'm seeing a lot about on social media right now as everybody tries to throw stones at the church and poke holes in it. Um, you've heard of this idea that people are like appalled. They're like, the church has a purity culture. You heard this before? If you lived through some of the days of church life that I lived through, we talked about purity a lot. Purity was an important thing. And now all of a sudden in our current generation where we're trying to create space to be able to do whatever we want, we're throwing stones at this idea of purity. It's not a church thing, it's a Bible thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. Some of us have asked this question before. Like, what's God's will for my life? Can I tell you that God's will for your life is not just vocational in nature? Listen, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is God's will. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That means God's will is for you to come to Jesus one way. He loves you exactly where you are at, but his will is to sanctify you, to continue to wash you and regenerate you and make you new. It's sanctification, and that is that you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to, this is what his will that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all of these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, now listen to this. If all of that, you're like, ah, well, uh, uh. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Listen, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just teaching you the Bible today. These are big verses. Like some of us are like, I didn't know about that verse. (laughs) This is, if we are honest, a hard concept for us to wrestle with, especially in today's culture. See, purity is not necessarily a topic that we consider a pop culture topic. It doesn't bleed relevance, right? Some of you are like, dang it, I should have invited my friend today. And some of the friends got invited today are like, dang it, I shouldn't have said yes. <laughs> see, if we're single here today, we see this as a dull, irrelevant, and prudish topic that's designed as to simply withhold from us that which is beautiful about our humanity. And if we're married in here today, we see this as an irrelevant topic because we're married and therefore it's simply not applicable. A recent statistic that just came out from one of the largest forums of litigators and lawyers in divorce court says that 56% of divorces right now, this was a poll that was taken across 1,600 lawyers, 56% of divorces are because of habitual use of pornography. Wow. Wow. And just so we don't throw the singles underneath the bus, the greatest content consumer of pornography is not singles and is not 18 to 25-year-olds. 20, it is married men at a whopping 82%. See, purity is about the quality of sin. I mean, purity speaks to the issue of being clear, clean, and untainted. 
Now listen to what Paul writes to Titus in Titus 1, verse 15. Y'all see how the Bible hopefully starts stacking on itself. Titus 1, verse 15 says this, to the pure, see this, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Ladders, not buckets. Am I talking to the church today? Y'all hearing me today? And so we have to deal with these issues. Lust literally causes us to reframe everything that we sense, see, hear, touch, and feel because lust dilutes purity. And because of this, we no longer see and experience things in the way that we should, the way that they were designed to be experienced. Once again, Rebecca DeYoung helps us with this truth. She said, acknowledging the goodness of sex is the first step. Okay, I'm gonna stop there and just acknowledge the goodness of sex for a second. Okay, I'm gonna talk to this side because they're with me over here. This side's quiet. <laughs> Can I just go on record of saying sex is awesome? Okay, it's great. It's, am- it's amazing. It's what it's supposed to be within its context. There's a right way to use things. There's there's an entire book in the Bible that frames this understanding for us, the beauty and the purity that's within covenantal married sex. And the problem is, is that many of us fight in our marriages, we fight in our relationships, we don't understand this because our view of sex is defiled in its nature. Because it hasn't been, our framework hasn't been built on a, on a purity issue. So one of the greatest reasons that I work to make sure that certain things don't get in my head and th- in my eyes and in my ears and in my heart is because I want to make sure that I approach my wife every single moment of the day with pure eyes, as pure as possible. Come on, somebody. I don't want to approach her with defiled eyes because then I'm taking advantage of a beautiful daughter of God at the end of the day. And my job is to steward her. My job is to honor her. My job is to lift her up. My job is to care about her. And one of the greatest ways that I care about her is by learning refraining from restraint and to see things purely. When we misuse something habitually, we lose our ability to enjoy it fully. Much of the sexual dysfunction, intimacy, arousal, and enjoyment issues people experience all trace back to unchecked lust, the dilution of purity, all of which leaves people damaged, depressed, lonely, angry. But sure, let's keep telling ourselves nobody gets hurt. Number three. Last one. Everybody shout number three. three. Lust cheapens originality. Lust cheapens originality. First of all, the way that you think about people translates into the way that you treat people. Fantasy is often a rehearsal for reality. The more often you indulge in it mentally, the more likely you are to give into it physically. I was reading in this book, Divine Sex, they're talking actually about the church, the chapter I just got done with, and how the church, think about this for a second, how the church can live together 
in community appropriately. And they, the, the, the summation of this author would say that one of the greatest reasons that we are seeing like breaks in the church and these fissures being created is because of unchecked sexuality. Because we can no longer walk into a place and feel safe anymore because of the way people are living their lives, what they're putting. So we walk in here now and a single starts looking for other singles, not because they want to get closer to Jesus. We can say like, oh yeah, like we want to, you know, uh, we've been asked this a lot around here. I'm just going to full send. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we have a singles ministry around here? Because singles is a designation. It's not a life space. It's a relational designation. We should be doing, we have a church around here for young people and old people, married people and single people, young adults and students. Now, hold on. Well, students and kids, they have a ministry designated to them. Yes, because they are our most vulnerable population. So I need to put them in bubble wrap right now. You are not a vulnerable population. You're supposed to be a mature population who's no longer drinking milk but eating meat. So we should be serving alongside of each other. And the last thing you need is a cauldron of singles to all complain to and talk about your woes of being single. Get into Helen's table group. That's where you need to be. Get into the FARS table group. Get around. Go start serving in, in youth ministry. Or if you really want to help yourself out, serve in kids ministry. It's a cold shower really quick. <laughs> I'm staying pure. I'm staying holy. <laughs> Indulging in fantasy makes you dissatisfied and eventually unable to fully engage with reality as John Mayer would teach us. The more you think about what you could have or should have, the less interested you become in what you actually have. I would actually venture, I know, I'm, I feel like I'm picking on the singles today. I'm not trying, I'm just trying to help you out today. But like, one of the greatest things that frustrates me is when you're like, there's no one here. There's no one for me to engage in relationship with. Like, come stand on this ladder. We'll find somebody. <laughs> I see them. Here's the problem, is many of us look for the fantasy we were indulging last night not the provision that God potentially has in the house. Y'all with me this morning? I'm gonna invite the team up today. Listen to this. Write this down if you're taking notes today. These are just kind of like one shots to just kind of help us like assimilate this information. Lust, it wants the rewards of a relationship without the requirements of a relationship. Lust is escapism in the form of immediate self-gratification. Lust longs for something that doesn't actually exist, a one-sided romance with an uncomplicated partner with no real needs of their own whose sole purpose is to make you feel good. Lust imagines I want what I want regardless of what you want. Lust wants a fabricated ideal, not something real. It's a real relationship with a real person. It's way too much work. Because a, re a real relationship, they're gonna have wants and needs, desires, opinions, preferences, boundaries, many of which is different from yours. 
Lust has no patience for that. Lust isn't interested in, in caring compromise. It wants all of its physical and emotional needs met without having to extend the effort necessary to meet someone else's. Lust cheapens originality. And this is why the Bible says that God's original plan was for man and woman to come together in one flesh, to leave and to cleave. That was his design plan for us. Next week, I'm gonna help us understand how we deal then with lust. What are some practical applications? What are some things that we can place in our life to help us work through this issue? But with every head bowed and every eye closed today, I know this could be a jarring message for some of us, and so just so you know, I'm not gonna ask anybody to lift their hands at this point in the service when I pray over you right now. But I know that for some of us today, a conversation like this is gonna bring up all kinds of different things. For some of you, you're gonna have to walk out of here today strongly disagreeing with everything that I've just said. And But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And I would just say to you that if you go in a lengthy discourse and investigation of scripture, you will find that everything that's been presented today falls in line with scripture and about God's view for sex, sexuality for our lives. Secondarily, some of us are in the room today and we've participated in things, we've been wounded by things, we've given into different proclivities and we've found ourselves in different situations for all kinds of different reasons. But here's what I do know about Jesus, is that he finds us right where, our, right where we are at, but he doesn't leave us there. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just wanna pray over us today that God would wash our minds, that he would wash our hearts, that he would bring strength back to our souls and to our bodies. As the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's no law against these things. So Heavenly Father, right now, by your grace and your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would first and foremost wash all of our minds right now in Jesus' name. That you would wash them white as snow. God, we didn't come today just to another event or to another church service, but we came to have our lives changed by you today. And so where there has been issues of lust and issues that maybe that I haven't even named today, God, I pray that you would wash us white as snow. Search us, oh God. Reveal to us, each of us, where our hearts and our minds are at today. And I thank you that you are working and you are moving in this place right now. For those of us who, have, who are broken and shattered on the inside right now because of things done to us and because of the things done to us, we engaged in other things. God, I pray right now that the spirit of that thing would be broken in the name of Jesus. That we would no longer be the product of what was done to us, but rather we would be the product of what you did for us on the cross. And so I thank you, Jesus, right now that we have freedom in your name. In Jesus' name. Now with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around today, outside of any willpower, outside of any Holy Spirit self-discipline, I would say that this starts, the journey starts with a relationship with Jesus and many of us have yet to say yes to him in here. So I wanna give you an opportunity, if that's you today, if you'd say, man, Jason, I wanna know this Jesus that brings freedom in, in my life. 
We're gonna pray a prayer all together today. We're all gonna pray this so we don't leave anybody out. There's nothing fancy in these words, but rather the heart from which these words come. So come on, as loud as we possibly can, would you all repeat this after me? Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, and make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. I'm sorry for doing it my way. And today, I am shifting, and I am following your way. In Jesus' mighty name.